People just don't realize how pervasive Ethernet is in modern society, and I have argued repeatedly that it's not so much the information age as it is the Ethernet age. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Katherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. In this episode, Chris Norman and I chat with Intel engineers Doug Boom and Kevin Bross about the long history of Intel Ethernet and open source. Few technologies are so pervasive in our lives, and there is much to tell. Enjoy, and please join us again for more important open source conversations. You can find more from the team at open.intel at open.intel.com and at open at Intel on Twitter. I'm here with Doug Boom and Kevin Bross, who are engineers in our Intel Ethernet group. They are working on some really important technology that you know, keeps the world spinning. So this is going to be fun. And Chris Norman, my colleague from the Open.Intel team, is joining me again today, which is fantastic because Chris, as I have said many times before, knows everything there is to know about Intel and open source, right? I think that's that, not, that's, not how, that's how we're pitching it. <laughs> but, I mean, in, you know, to my view. So this is going to be great because you know, I think we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. We might go to space. It's going to be great. So with that, so I wondered if y'all could introduce yourselves just a little bit and tell us what it is that you do here at Intel. My name's Douglas Boom. I'm a principal engineer in Intel Ethernet. I've been doing... Ethernet at Intel for 29 years, and uh, right now I do customer enablement, uh, where people come to us and say, "Hey, help! I I need some, some you know, I've got a new whiz bang thing I need help with," and that's where I step in and help create solutions. Um, fun fact you may not know about me: I used to work for Mr. Norman, so Chris used to be my boss at one point. Lucky you! So uh, there's lots of lots of history. That's very cool. My name is Kevin Bross. I've been at Intel 34 years. I'm a, I'm a principal engineer, and I, I work on various systems at Intel, uh, a lot of things with telecommunications, doing synchronization, timing, working with various service providers around the world, also working with customers in, in the embedded space, uh, military, government, as well as uh, a number of, of uh, private financial institutions. So... Chris, I don't think we've ever, we've never really had you introduce yourself. Frankly, I've never introduced myself, but you know, I think, I feel like after we, we so many episodes, eventually people will figure it out. But yeah. Right, yeah, but yeah, I would love for you to tell us just a, a little bit more about your Intel story because it is a good one. Um, it's, it's been, it's been quite a long ride. I, I've been, I've been in Intel for 34 years now this year. Um, and I started off in the corporate quality network and I've worked there for a decade. And then, as, as Doug alluded to, I actually worked in the, in the network division uh, when it was the LAN access division uh, for another decade plus uh, before joining the open source world. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've basically had three different decades of career through Intel um, spanning you know, most of the business units. I, I've interacted with most of the business units through, through the various different groups I've worked in. So it's, it's been fascinating to see everything that's gone inside Intel. So many good stories to tell. Too. <laughs> I hope we'll get somebody, to at somebody least a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Doug, tell, tell us a little bit. Um, tell us the the history, the history of open source, 
and Intel Ethernet. We were there. We were there at the beginning, weren't we? When we dug. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you really got to hop in the Wayback Machine if you want to talk Intel Ethernet and and Linux, and uh, you know, it even to some regards even goes back even further than that, right? Intel has been uh, with Ethernet since its founding. The old original uh, DEC Intel Xerox uh, consortium that created the first standards that then became 802.3, which now is we all call Ethernet. Um, and you know, out of that roots, we you know started with ISA buses and eight-bit cards and all sorts of crazy stuff of two two and a half megabit cards uh, where you had like vampire cables where you had to actually physically cram things through cables by stabbing them very you know <laughs> very very violently. Yep. Yeah. And um, you know, when I joined uh, in Ethernet in uh, in 1995. Um, it was, uh, you know, we were coming out with something that we were calling, the industry was calling fast Ethernet. And now today's Ethernet is a thousand times faster than that, right? So it was 100 megabits back then in, in 95. And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing 100 gigabit products now, and, and it's been an amazing ride. Intel really got involved, uh, you know, every time a new OS would come out, we would we would be, uh, you know, want to make sure that our products were available so that customers could enjoy the Intel Ethernet on, on all the newness. And so, you know, things like, ooh, you know, Windows NT and SEO5 <laughs> and SEO3 and Unixware and Netware. And, you know, the, the late 90s was really a, a really explosive period for operating systems, including this, you know, plucky little one out of out of Finland. Right. And so um, we originally uh, a lot of people's first experiences with Intel Ethernet was actually through uh, a driver that a gentleman named Becker was creating. Uh, he was a NASA employee and um we were getting support calls for, hey, can you help us make this driver work a little bit better? And we invested in, in at those timeframes, and uh, we still have all the files from back then. Of uh, I was looking at them before the uh, you know, meeting with you today, just to get in the old Wayback Machine myself. Is It's like, hey, the changelog says that we build on the 2.2 kernel now. So it really shows how far how, back, how far back we've been doing things, and um, you know if you read the people that uh, the participants for like ETH Tool, those are um, a lot of those names are Intel Ethernet employees uh, now moved on to some other things in some other cases, um, but uh, you know Intel Ethernet has continued to be a, an active and, and willing participant with the Linux environment and the open source environment. It, it it was quite astounding how many different drivers we were supporting at one point. I, I remember when. You know, we, we had a big, big challenge. We couldn't fit all the drivers we wanted to distribute on one floppy disk, <laughs> and then we had to go to distributing them on on a on a CD-ROM. And we had you know CD-ROM duplicating machines that we were spinning up all these driver releases. I, I actually during that time frame, I was the uh, the the product technical lead for uh, those those heady days, and I actually handcrafted the first CD-ROM that we had to release on because wow. we used to edit files to remove because uh, we actually had to count sectors on the floppies because uh, even though we had room for size. Um, sizes took up sectors, and if you ran out sectors, then you just couldn't uh, load more stuff onto the floppy. And so that was what pushed us over to CD-ROMs. And so uh, as I, I was tidying up my desk at the big office uh, a couple days ago, and, and I literally still had the old, um, you know, 
first build where it was actually the first uh, CD-ROMs that we'd ever done. And it was like 12 OSs that we were supporting simultaneously at that time. And it was, it was quite a burden. And, um, you know, it was, it was uh, very quickly, you know, we could see why, you know, Unix was, Linux was going to dominate the Unix space was because it was open source. It, was, it, it had so much con, uh, ability to be customized and, and uh, enhanced in, in ways that all these closed source uh, alternatives just weren't able to, to compete with and um, it just was just, we were all very surprised on how fast it took over but because we had invested in it at the bottom um, we, were, we were in great position to to be in the kernel the the e100 driver the e1000 driver ixgbe ice these days um, or you know intel's uh, history is all over the kernel yeah we had a lot of we, I mean, it wasn't just the the writing the drivers we actually had a very extensive compatibility test lab as well for all the different variations our uh, our testing team was uh, was called software evaluation and test and and of course that acronym is sweat and um you know they had t-shirts so that was you know, we, <laughs> <laughs> we sweat so our customers don't have to right and so that was like the tagline for the team and uh their official name was like network quality labs or nql and yes. uh the, the validation, uh, you know, I worked with a lot of really great testers that were uh, really pushing the uh, the product to its limits because we knew that's what customers were, were going to do with it was um, take it to strange and unusual places of which we've seen plenty. Um, and, you know, failure is not an option in some of these cases. And uh, that was what the, the testing all provided. I actually remember back in the time, one of the uh, quality managers coming into a meeting and uh, we had a rule at the time that if you said something bad about somebody, you had to put a quarter into the kitty, you know, and we'd have a party at the end of, at the end of a project. And this, this uh, quality manager came in and plopped down two rolls of quarters on the table and said, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I love that you said failure is not an option, right? So this is, yeah, I feel like I should kind of disclose my own perspective. The reason I love these kind of, history lessons here is because, you know, I'm very much at top of the stack. You know, I'm way up here, so far away from this type of really important foundational technology. It's the kind of unseen magic that happens at a very fundamental level that a lot of us, let's say, you know, doing more, let's call it superficial development, (laughs) although that's a terrible word, take for granted. And yet this is why, you know, here we are where it's, um, I think hearing the, these stories and, and, and this evolution is really interesting for, I guess, appreciation of just the importance of the kind of technology that y- y'all are working on. We, we, we do all take it for granted. I mean, in, back in the days when 10, 100 gigabit was coming out, you you know, you plug the cable in and the little light comes on and you were golden. You know, that was it. We were done. You Magic. Know? But to get to that point, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of engineering work that went on. Um, yeah. We had some extremely extremely um smart intelligent people that were you know doing the engineering work to make the transition from 10 100 to happen 100 to gigabit to happen and you know after my time i'm sure gigabit to 2.5 and beyond right people just don't realize how pervasive ethernet is in modern society and i have argued repeatedly that um it's not so much the information age as it is the ethernet age because it it's just interoperability it's deployability it's cost point for for performance uh has has made information distribution to be so trivial as nobody notices that it happens um 
I, I like to do stuff like stand in a store, like, you know, some warehouse provider or something and, and just be like, yeah, there's 150 Ethernet ports that I can see from here, right? They're in your TVs, they're in your cars, they're in your planes, trains, mm -hmm. medical equipment, um, the financial institutions all operate off of it, um, we, you know, whole bank networks. Um, very one of the stories that I used to love to tell was uh, you don't go to college or jail in the state of California without Intel Ethernet being a participant. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> and uh, we've been involved with the uh, the Olympics the, since the Olympics started streaming in uh, in 2000. Um, we, we've been involved with that aspects, and you know, as we start deploying things like. Um, you know, VRAN and, and the 5G wireless networks, uh, you know, all that data hall has to come over uh, Ethernet as well, because it's, you know, it's only wire wireless until the uh, the access point, And then it's all wired from there. So in, so in one of our recent episodes, which everyone should check out with George Castro and also Chris, uh, George said, you know, if the Linux kernel suddenly disappeared, the next day there would be zombies. Well, I don't even want to imagine what would happen if suddenly in, uh, Ethernet device drivers didn't work, right? That would... Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, so, so when are we going to run out of IP4 addresses? And when is IPv6 going to take over the world? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with, with, with NATs, uh, network address translations, we will probably never effectively run out of IPv4 addresses. Um, but, um, you know, IPv6 is already around there very frequently. They'll have IPv6 hosting days. That was really big in like 2005, 2010 era where websites would have, we only do V6 stuff, but, um, there's as much as there's always, um, uh, you know, better mouse traps, the engineering capabilities of, of creative people in the ethernet industry keeps pushing things further and further and further. We were writing in Linux journal years ago about you know, the impending doom if we don't get to IPv6 and the, the world is still spinning. So I wanted to ask you, um, so tell me, we're all Intel here. What is a, what has allowed Intel Ethernet to be so successful in open source markets? The, so, so Intel's very public about uh, its products and to be frank, some of the limitations of the products. And so um, the fact that we had public data sheets, we had public errata statements, um, it, it allowed people like uh, Becker at NASA to create a, a product on top of our hardware. And, um, you know, when we saw how successful that was being in the market, Intel uh, stepped into that space and, and started creating our own our own drivers. Of course, you know, uh, with an environment uh, that is share and share alike with the, the GPL environment, um, you know, it was a little bit different for, from us. But, you know, we've uh, been participating in that and um, sharing implementations. And uh, ever since then, you know, we've always had, uh, you know, very specific targeted documentation. We make programmers reference manuals for our silicon. And um, when the 10 gigabit transition was starting to happen, we actually were seeding uh, 10 gigabit adapters for free into uh, open source communities in order to help enable them. And I, I met some great people um, that are now part of the implementation, uh, you know, so the OpenStack people um, through like Yocto project teams and some other people like that, that um, just needed a little bit more networking uh, to really unlock the potentials of their community. And because Intel was had a, um, you know, people like John Ronchak and Jesse Brandenburg um, and, uh, and others, they were able to seed adapters into these places and really allowed the, um, the Linux community to really put networking into the, into the forethought instead of as an afterthought.
we're continuing on with that, you know, um, march towards the next big things, right? And that's, you know, kind of what you and Kevin are working on, right? Yeah, and it, it was, as we've seen the things from, you know, transitioning from E100, which was, a you know, effectively a 100 megabit part to a 100 um, now, now we have the ice driver that, that Kevin does a lot of work with. It's a, a hundred gigabit part, right? And so, um, it's, it's funny that it was the E100 back then. And now the one gigabit, the hundred gigabit part is the E800. So the, the names have kind of come back around full circle, but, um, they're still, you know, just moving data at, at, uh, to the places it needs to go as fast as possible. And as, uh, you know, keeping the data integrity as, as good as possible. And what's also been interesting is it's it's gone to become a lot more than just moving the data. It also has things like synchronization and timing that are that are so important for so many industries, whether it's ATMs, whether it's uh, 5G, 4G communication systems, whether it's um, locating locating things around the world, audio video synchronization for network broadcasters, those sorts of things. They're all using Ethernet and they're they're uh, adding capabilities like like time synchronization onto that baseline communication path that Doug's talking about. Yeah, in the beginning, it was just 802.3, and um, there was like one or two extensions to that at the IEEE level. And now there's a literal alf alphabet soup to the point where they're they're talking about having three letters after the 802.1 um, <laughs> of, of extra statistics. And, and the fun thing is, is they're all compatible, right? Is I could whip out one of those original um, Intel 82.557 adapters, plug it into my home network, and it's going to be all fat, dumb, and happy, just as good as um, like an, an Intel I I225 adapter that just came out last year, right? Is that um, the, that intercompile but then extensibility is really what's kept Ethernet uh, always on the cutting edge of innovation for its its 40 plus years. I'd like to see you find a PC you can still plug a 557 into. <laughs> oh, Mr. Norman, you know better than that. You know I've got one. <laughs> for me too, yeah. It's a PCI adapter, and uh, I still have uh, one system that has one PCI X slot uh, just, for, just for these such of emergencies, so... <laughs> I love that we're all hoarders. I have so much cool old stuff. Uh, anyway. Okay, so Intel Ethernet it's in the Linux kernel. Very cool. Contributing upstream. There's also a SourceForge page. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, the, the SourceForge... Um, so people still it, use SourceForge. <laughs> It's a great repository because, um, you know, when you've been involved with the community for, for such a long time, like Intel Ethernet has, um, you know, we have customers that elect to stay with kernels that are not necessarily the tip, but want tip out of you know, tip features from the Intel Ethernet product lines. And so by having our own SourceForge repository of, of, of just being able to stick tarballs, it allows us to do things like have the ICE driver that is um, you know, only accepted into fairly recent you know, 4X type kernels, have an implementation that could work on their favorite 3X or, or uh, implementation instead of having to expect a customer to to backport from uh, you know kernel.org, they can just go to SourceForge and and get a driver that uh, has a compatibility level layer built into it. Now the 
the the kernel people they don't really like that kind of a construct because it, it is clearly an extra bloat layer and uh, they you know they want to keep things thin and tidy up at the kernel level um, but for customers that you know have an organizational need for staying on a legacy uh, implementation this provides them kind of best of both worlds and it allows Intel to have a little bit more freedom of there's some features that we like that maybe the kernel people don't like um, or they don't feel necessarily that it's ready or, or you know other reasons like that um, that it gives us some independence where our, our customer base can get kind of the the best offerings that Intel Ethernet can have but knowing that uh, they always have the in-kernel module available. So if they just load up their latest favorite uh, implementation, that their uh, Intel Ethernet device will be supported at some level. And tell me about, like, how much development is out in the open? How open is the, I mean, obviously the stuff that you're contributing up upstream is very much in the open. I mean, do, can, I, can I just, can I submit a patch for an Intel Ethernet driver? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, because it works through the, the, the kernel methodologies, um, there is a mailing list for it. Um, people can submit patches. Uh, the the network infrastructure maintainer in the kernel community does solicit inputs from Intel of like, you know, hey, what do you guys think about these types of things? Um, but, they, you know, Intel is not the final arbiter of that. Um, the Linux community technically owns all of our drivers in the in the kernel space. Um, but they, you know, do heavily consult with us. And uh, so you end up with some things where, you know, there's agree to disagree, but the, um, you know, people get stuff in uh, and it gets gets supported by the, the community. And as some of our technologies have, have aged, uh, like the E100 driver, um, that's pretty much these days only owned by the community. We don't have anybody that officially works out on it. Although if you ask me nicely, I'll still support you on it. Only because I'm the old <laughs> guy, right? So um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 great because I've I've actually done some some private implementations for for partners, and they then turn around and 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 uh, issued it to the kernel mailing list as like I'd like to have this as a patch for upstreaming. It's always been a difficult balance to to to, to strike between implementing new features and pre-announcing them <laughs> through open source. Yeah. Right? I know we've had some some fun challenges trying to enable the new features before in parallel with the launch of the products you have any good stories from that yeah because of the cycle because of the cycles that it takes for kernels to be in development um you know we want to have some of our new product silicon uh, available with a, a kernel that launches about the same time as the product uh the challenge is is that that means that we're you know basically having to put uh, early access code into the kernel and for uh in the early days of like the 10 gigabit line uh, really kind of unnerved some of the stakeholders when inside of Intel, but um, you know the, the community is is very respectful about people doing new initiatives and new technologies, and uh, you know we've we've kind of got it down pat. So when the um, E800 line, which came out with the ICE driver, um, the, you know that driver had a very quick. Um, accessible uh, community interaction because we'd we'd proven to the community that you know this was something that they could trust us to execute on, and uh, you know these these placeholders would be replaced by you know actual real working. Uh, even the early stuff was really working, but you know there's there's full featured versus you know it works, and um, you know th that allowed us to have that community relationship to to have them start with the uh, hey it loads to hey it does the coolness now with what what you get if you get a modern ice driver in the Linux kernel. But it, it was a big challenge. I remember at the time you know to to get people within Intel comfortable with the fact that we were um, you know 
sharing this outside of the company um, with groups yeah, that it, it looks... were working GPL that could quite easily take that and proliferate it. Um, and we couldn't do anything legally about it. Um, but we were relying on you know, the, the community relationships we built with these with these people to, you know, keep it, you know, secure until it was ready to go. And once we got them on board with, you know, Intel has a tradition of our manuals being public. It's like anybody could make a driver with that same manual. Why not have it be Intel where you've got the, the you know, the history and the in institutional memory um, and, and the community at a certain sense, um, you know, they don't care about how much money you make off of your product. Are you lifting all boats with your implementation, right? And so right. That, that's kind of the, the spirit of, of the open source community is, are, are you improving, um, you know, humanity's lot in life by, by up-leveling human, the human experience? And so, um, I mean, that sounds a little bit grandiose, but that's effectively what the whole open source uh, concept is, is, uh, you know, sharing um, these experiences so that everybody can learn from them. And so once we kind of got through that, hey, wait a minute, the sky is not going to fall if we tell people how to write a descriptor um and and i think we also had to get over some of our own ego of clearly we were the most important thing ever <laughs> um no right is um you know a lot of people in the kernel are more worried about what is their desktop and and you know kde versus gnome and that type of stuff and your ethernet provider is um you know dithering on what is the you know or is it asphalt versus concrete where everybody else is working about what what kind of car is uh are you actually driving and so that's that's uh once we got over that hurdle institution it's uh, it's been a lot easier and like the ice driver people didn't even concern about it it was just like absolutely we're going to have uh, everything available as early as possible Beautiful. so so tell me about the scope of your work your work is not limited to drivers correct my work is um, when a customer comes in and says, yeah, we've got your Intel Ethernet part and we're trying to do something crazy with it and it's not working, can you help us make it work, please? And so wherever that dialogue goes, I, I go with it. And most of the time, um, the challenges that they're having is um, at the physical layer. So it's actually, um, you know, Ethernet has a kind of a slicer dicer per part called the media access controller and or, or Mac. And the Mac talks to a physical layer called the Phi, and they, they'll pick a weird Phi. I always joke about it. it's you know passenger pigeon type Phi, um, <laughs> and it it uh, when we get those types of weird things that um, because the passenger pigeon Phi talks KR and we talk KR, we should be fine with this new Phi, and that's not always as seamless as everybody expects it to be, and and uh, that's when I step in and, and help make things happen, and um, sometimes that's hardware implementation problems like I've had with the shuttle safe program working with with nasa as well as you know just things of um i, I need to, to be sending you know packets for 16 seconds and then i don't have to worry about it anymore and it's like why only 16 seconds and it's like well because it hits its target <laughs> so talk a little bit more about the shuttle program because that, that was a fascinating yeah. uh, a fascinating story oh yeah um so uh you, 
Intel, this is going to be a little bit of a shock to a lot of people. Intel doesn't necessarily know everywhere that it, you know our products go. And so um, sometimes we only find out because people have challenges with them and they come to us for help. And uh, I got a support case uh, towards the end of, of a year and I was working with a, with a partner and it was a, a Midwest company that had a video capture solution. And uh, we were having some challenges and, and we were working through them. And um, I found out it was for the shuttle safe program that NASA had implemented after the, the Columbia disaster. And this was, um, for those of you who don't remember that far back, this was getting uh, high, high definition feeds from the launch pad to Houston for safety assessments within five minutes. And so they had multiple high definition streams that were simultaneously being fed off to Houston for analysis so they could abort the orbiter at a stage where the astronauts would be able to survive. And so this was literally a, a life or death solution. And uh, the, the, the provider that was making the cameras they were streaming over uh, the Intel 82546 product, and um, they had some hardware challenges. This was back in the PCI days where um, it was a, a parallel interface, and both sides had to agree to exchange data on the same clock. And because of some hardware challenges, they were a clock behind the controller, and so things weren't going, trans the transfer wasn't happening as it was supposed to. Um, but uh, it took a lot of you know hard, hard uh, debugging, and uh, very famously, uh, the director of the company called me up and was like, so should I have the NASA director call you, or should I have them call Craig Barrett? And I was like, I'm working as fast as I can. I can work as fast as I can. <laughs> that involved actually working over... Uh, the Super Bowl, um, and and due to some interesting scheduling, my my uh, anniversary is it used to be on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, the Sun Super Bowl weekend, and so I had to explain to my wife that I was going to have to be working over our anniversary. But when she knew, you know, when I told her it was for keeping the astronauts safe, she was like, "Just work what you got to. It's way more important, and you can take me out to dinner when you're done." So, <laughs> and uh, we we solved the problem, and obviously because the uh, you know the the shuttle safe program operated until the they were all retired but um i love going to museums and i got to see the discovery and enterprise uh, um and uh the one that's in southern california so i i've seen four out of the five surviving shuttles um and it's it's i'm very proud to say that it's some of my work has has helped kept them in the condition that they're in that's very yeah. cool i, I should mm. admit mentioned that i actually I, i'm in houston i live in houston no. i'm a little sad we didn't get a shuttle but <laughs> that's a whole other story for another time so so let's i i'd love I'd, I'd really like to pivot over and get kevin's perspective a little bit more on um to go on a little bit more of a technical deep dive sure so so uh one of the areas that i focus on is synchronization and timing and so back in in 2004 ieee created a standard called 1588 precision time protocol for to allow synchronization uh, between different nodes, and it it accounted for you know how long the cable was, and you could basically have two different nodes that were totally on different times, and it would slowly work its way together so they were operating both synchronously at the same rate, and then synchronously, but they both had the same sense of time at the same time, and uh, that was that was with the uh, with the original 1588 version one, and then in 2008, they came out with a with a uh, 
updated version 1588 version 2, which is what most people use today. Um, and, and that provides, it, it's, it's used all over the place for synchronization uh, in manufacturing, in, in audio video. Uh, my area of expertise is in, is in 5G and, and uh, wireless communications. Um, it's used in financial transactions, gaming, all sorts, of, all sorts of things where you need systems to be able to have the same sense of time. And uh, there's a, there's a uh, provider out, there's, there's a maintainer of the 1588 uh, code. It's, it's a Linux PTP project, which is on SourceForge, that uh, Richard Cochran is, is the lead maintainer for this. And he's done a wonderful job over the years helping to shepherd it through. And there are providers from a, uh, a number of Intel and some ex-Intel people that are helping to, to maintain this. Um, there, was a, there was a recent release of this and he had, I think, 50 some providers, um, con contributors to that who helped add, add additional capabilities to it. And so they're adding new capabilities that allow us to provide synchronization um, between devices adding capabilities so you can have multiple network controllers in a system that are um, synchronized to each other over hardware signals. Um, we call them SDP software-defined pins that are time-aware GPIO signals. Um, uh, but we're able to actually have multiple multiple NICs within a system. I'm talking to, to uh, network providers who are looking at wanting to have, you know, 29, 30 NIC ports in a server. Right to, to handle all the different all the different radio heads they have, for example. When you look up at a at a at a radio head, you'll see these triangles up there, and sometimes you'll see four or eight different radios on each face of the triangle. Okay, let's say there are eight up there, right? Eight on three sides. That's twenty four different radio heads up there, and t typically that's that's twenty four different uh, Ethernet feeds that need to go into there from the base station to feed those radios. We and say, so they we need to be Nick, it's network interface card for the people that are network interface. <laughs> oh card. yes, thank, thank you. you, thanks for that. Yeah. Or or, or network interface controller, right? right. We're also right. looking at, at at some some LAN on motherboard uh, designs where those those network interface controllers can either be on adding cards or they can be directly installed on the motherboard or a combination thereof. Yeah, yeah but uh, um, we have these systems where, like, to meet the three DPP requirements for LTE or for five G. In order to do a handoff between cell towers, you have to be synchronized to within three microseconds of the the opposite device. Uh, so typically, everybody tries tries to have every cell tower to be within one and a half microseconds of GPS time, and and so that way, any two of these are within three microseconds of each other, and so you can do those handoffs. But when you when you get into some of the more advanced features, we're looking at things that are sub microsecond in terms of the synchronization requirements that have to be there, and and we have uh, increasing requests from service providers and from uh, some of the big data center folks to be able to get timing down in into the you know double digit single digit nanosecond type, type of timing, and so we're doing things like like we've designed timing synchronization cards. Um, like our Westport Channel, Logan Beach cards that have um, built-in uh, built-in synchronization capabilities. They have uh, OCXOs, oven compensated oscillators, on board that can provide four hours of holdover time to keep the the 
if they lose all timing sources, they can stay within one and a half microseconds for four hours. Um, these, these oscillators, uh, the accuracy of them are like one part per billion versus temperature, whereas our normal oscillators are about 50 parts per million, right? So that's about a 50,000 50, times differential in, in precision. Um, and and uh, we, we even have built-in GNSS modules. We can get access to, to satellite time and provide synchronization, provide uh, timing signals out. And then, and so we're, we're doing all this based upon this, this open source uh, software out there uh, from the Linux PTP project. And that's all really, really useful. Our customers like it, that it's not something Intel hidden and secret, you know, you know, Doug talked about how we're very open with it. We're using this this open source software, and people can go and can use all that, um, and can make adjustments as as they see fit. Oh, now, more recently, we've actually uh, started getting into what we call synchronous Ethernet. Whereas with with the Precision Time protocol, we would send out packets to synchronize things back and forth. Synchronous Ethernet actually uses the symbols that are coming down the Ethernet wire to actually provide synchronization uh, at, a, at a hardware level, at a hardware clocking level through the Ethernet symbols. And uh, when we wanted to offer that out to the community, uh, it was an interesting bit of a jump ball because uh, we came up with software we call it Synky 4L because um, the the PTP stuff was PTP 4L, so we called our Synky 4L, and we wanted to uh, kind of put it in with the uh, Linux PTP project, but that uh, didn't quite seem to be, you know, the people saying, well, that's not really precision time protocol, so it shouldn't go there. Where does it go? We ended up having to create a separate uh, repository for it, so the, so the Synky 4L software could be, could be uh, archived somewhere else. We've run into this again recently where on some of our newer silicon, we have the ability to have timed GPIO signals coming out based upon the CPU time, where we can get one pulse per second signals coming out. And uh, once again, it was kind of this, where does it fit? Is it Ethernet? Is it is it something else? And again, we had, we had to create uh, a different driver for a timed GPIO driver in order to make that work. But in all these cases, we're able to, you know, get things out and put them out into the open source community, so we can get contributions from oh, the okay. broader community. Yeah, that that actually, I think you answered the question where I was going. I, I I am actually kind of curious to see your your how your interaction with the community is on this. Like, do you get have you gotten a lot of external participation? Uh, so so on, on the Synky 4L, we, we've gotten s some good feedback um, uh, from some folks, uh, some some engagement in there. Um, it still is relatively new, and the time GPIO is even newer. Um, so, um, you know, we have a longer track record with what we're doing with with the Linux P2P community and Intel. Intel is is a, a, a contributor to that, as well as a number of folks that you look on there are also Intel alum. Oh, okay. So, so, and you can also see by the way that other operating systems are struggling behind the capabilities of Linux and the stuff that Kevin's working on is, is super 3d advanced ninja type stuff versus other closed source operating systems are like, Oh, there's time on ethernet now. Oh, how cute. Right. And it's, it's just, <laughs> uh, it's because of the open source capabilities that allows it to expand as fast as the market wants it to. 
So where do you, where, what's your hope with this? Where do you see this going? If I talk to you in a year, what do you hope to tell me? So what we're, what we're working on is there are different pieces of this. There's, um, as you peel the onion, you get to more and more layers. So there's, there's the, the Ethernet side itself, um, but there's, there's the synchronous Ethernet side. Um, we've gotten into, um, we, we, we have a team that recently released a, a driver, the Intel Clock Sync Library, for managing the DPLL, the Digital Phase Lock Loop devices that we use to actually bring all these pieces together and to provide multiple sets of timing interfaces. Those types of things are coming together. We're looking to get a broader community of, um, you know, we support two DPLLs okay. today. We'll be adding, we're, we're hoping to have the community add support for more DPLLs and be able to have just a broader set of capabilities so that people are able to get timing and synchronization routinely down in, into the single digit nanosecond level. DPLL is? Digital phase lock loop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure we, we <laughs> highlight we'll this. Little, we'll have to do a little glossary when we do, <laughs> do yes, the rest of the transcript. Yes, I think so. Thanks. Yeah, that's, yeah, you know, when you're working on this kind of like really cutting edge stuff, I mean, it's it must be very exciting and also a bit stressful. I mentioned before our uh, Westport Channel cards or our Logan Beach cards and we, we, we can get, get links to these uh, did on, you, on the Intel do you, do you website. Have, do you have the external names rather than the internal code names? Um, yes, XXVDA4T for for uh, for the the Westport channel. I forget what the, what the Logan Beach card is. Um, can, uh, can we say but, these names publicly? <laughs> we've certainly said them in a lot of different things. I I I, th I think some of the source code actually re references uh, Logan okay. Beach and Westport channel. Awesome. <laughs> you know, okay. if you're talking open source. Um, and and these these have uh, onboard GNSS modules, the global global navigation satellite systems. Like GPS is one of them, but not the only. There's GPS for the U.S. There's Galileo for Europe, GLONASS for Russia, Beidou for China, QZSS for Japan and APAC. Some of our other systems we we also add support for NAVIC, which is the Indian the Indian version. Um, we've got we've got connections to be able to put. Um, we have SMA subminiature adapter connectors, coaxial connectors, to be able to send timing signals out. So you can send like a one pulse per second signal out. So you can actually have something else be exactly timed, so it knows when a new second starts. Um, you know, so we, we we've got these sorts of things, and we're doing new versions of this with our newer silicon as as our newer silicon comes out. Um, we're embedding this into into motherboards. We have a number of customers doing doing systems with these effectively down on the motherboard as well. Apart from the the radio towers, which is you know obviously very important uh, to keep everything synchronized there, and, and you mentioned some of the other use cases. Do you, do, yeah. you, do you have some good uh, stories about where they're being used and how? You, how you... Sure, sure. So for example, we're working with with some of the industrial providers to do control of of their of their signals, like in, in automobile manufacturing plants, for example. Making sure the robot arms are in synchronization so they don't try and... Well, well not only so they don't do that, but we're also like looking at things where they're doing a weld and we'll do 29 different um, inspections of a weld to make sure that the weld is secure 
you know, before they go on. So we'll do auto automated optical inspection in conjunction with this and do adjustments to the uh, welding as well. But there also are things, certainly the, the deconfliction, um, being able being able to to look at things and and tell things in real time, you know, whether they're moving down a, an assembly line or you have people walking in and out of a plant, you need to identify different things. Um, industrial automation is one part of it. Um, banking and security, oh, right? Okay. You want to have, you know, if somebody says, I want to withdraw a thousand dollars. I want to withdraw that next thousand dollars. You know, you need to know the order of who gets to withdrawal and when the deposits happen and all that sort of stuff. You know, those have to be done. Um, for for Wall Street, there are Stock certain regulations for timing. Yes. Yeah, I, right. Very um, very important when you put put your cell order yeah, in. High frequency <laughs> trading. Yep. Right, right, and and so and so there's there's a lot of these things where you need to have very precise timing. And, and synchronization in there, and again, it's it's true both for for things that are somewhat ethereal, like like the the um, wireless communications, five G, four G, but also for for you know physical things moving down a track, or if you're trying to interact with the physical world, you sometimes need need timing that is that is well coordinated. Timing is everything. Uh -huh. Timing is everything. I actually right. had that as a tagline <laughs> in some of my slides. <laughs> so true. Perfect. Perfect. I feel like um, you've given us a really incredible an incredibly detailed illustration of just how important this is in our everyday lives. Like if you drive a car, this is important work, right? If you use, if you use a, a cell phone, phone. <laughs> yes, this is important work, right? Right. It's been fantastic. Right. Yeah. And, and, and if it's not synchronized right, it doesn't work. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one other example that we look at is, is when you talk about synchronization, um, if you want to find somebody, there's some people are aware of triangulation, but there's kind of the inverse version of it, which is trilateration, where you actually use like the cell towers to identify where somebody is. And so if, some, mm. you know, if you're driving down the road and you you know drive off drive off the freeway into a ditch, where are you? I'm in the ditch, right? I don't know where I am, right? You may not be able to get a satellite view, okay? Um, the accuracy of those cell towers can determine the radius that the that the 911 or emergency services have to do in order to search for that person, right? right? And so it comes down to it's it's a two and a half two and a half nanoseconds per meter for the synchronization accuracy so wow. so you can you can actually you know if if i can be twice as accurate i can reduce the search area by by uh 75 percent wow yeah that is that's real impact and that could again make the difference between life and death right exactly or or it can be the difference between you know making it making an audio video stream look like it's you know a a poor translation of audio and video not quite connecting <laughs> since since we've had a, a really a really fantastic discussion and i think we've hit everything we needed to hit we wouldn't mind hearing a, a parting uh, fun story from the from the archives uh so uh, very famously i you know 
as my role of, of being somebody who does, you know, enablement for, for partners, um, I was touring uh, Europe doing some sales enablements and um, we had to go to this company and they're driving in the middle of nowhere, Germany. And we come around the corner and there's a barn and the GPS is like, that's where you need to go. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and so we go into the barn and it's the, the corporate mini is parked in the bottom of the barn and they've turned the upstairs into a huge conference room. And we go upstairs and it's a, you know, there's sort of a fridge and HDTVs everywhere. It's, it's a full, um, you know, fancy all set up. And we talk about Ethernet in cars for the next four hours and design uh, an implementation that goes into the, the, the 2020 model year for that uh, large German vendor. Um, and, uh, that was an, an exciting times cause it was like, they had one idea of how they thought ethernet worked and just being able to talk them through it, uh, enabled them to kind of have a different perspective of, wait a minute, when your car comes into the bay, we can actually just plug in a cable and then upload all of the firmware on every node within the car, uh, and, and away you go. And so, uh, you know, the cars are one of the areas that Kevin and I's work overlaps extensively because, you know, you want all four of your brakes going off at the same time when you're braking hard. And, and uh, you know, that takes timing and making sure that you have the physical connectivity takes the physical layer work that I do predominantly. And so, um, you know, there's while there's no car in a data center, there's a data center in every car. And, um, you know, 48 uh, ports are, are not uncommon to see in, in a car. And so, um, you know, Ethernet's really just kind of getting started. Timing's going to lead the way into new market segments, controlling, um, you know, multiple implementations simultaneously when you have that nanosecond timing scale available. And, um, you know, is, is with the open uh, source availability, customers can innovate on top of it at their own rate. And they aren't locked into, uh, you know, having their vendors have to create a solution for them. So between timing, Ethernet, and open source, uh, the three of them together are going to really enable some amazing products the next couple of years. I like it. You know, Ethernet will take you to unexpected places, including German barns. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what you might find. In and and the outer space as well. Yeah. well Anywhere, yes, from German barns they're, they're, to outer space. We have so many potential titles here. It's so great. They're, they're, there's Ethernet being used in outer space. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep. We like to joke around the office that we're the number one Ethernet provider on Mars. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, the, how will uh, I ever pick a title? Intel, <laughs> the Intel i210 product, uh, there was four of them in the... Uh, the sky crane mechanic uh, that where they would actually lower the lander that, and then the, the, the sky crane would fly off. There's uh, four Intel ethernet ports per sky crane. So um, Intel ethernet will forever be on the surface of Mars. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much. This has been, this has been really fun. I, I hesitate to say it's been even more fun than I expected. I really enjoy these, these history lessons technology lessons it's fantastic this is really exciting stuff that you're working on really important and i'm really glad we can get the word out a little bit more thank you <laughs> <laughs>